0: Well, good morning. We are going to talk about trials this morning. So what I want you to do as we start this morning, I'd like you to think about difficulties and and trials in your life, and I'd like you to think about some words that you would use to describe how you respond to difficulties and trials in your life. I'm not going to ask you to to say them out loud, but just think for a moment. What are they? Maybe you could even jot a couple down in your sermon outline, but what are some, some words that you would use to describe the way that you respond to difficulties and trials. I'm guessing maybe some of you wrote down things like you dread them or you avoid them. We'd like to do that, wouldn't we? Uh, Maybe you would say that you endure them. Um, Maybe you'd say you panic (laughs) when you have a trial coming into your life, if you're really honest, right? And all those describe some of the different emotions that we have when difficulties come into our life, but but what I want you to understand this morning is that trials are not always something to be avoided. That in fact if we view them through the proper scope that, that we ought to actually be encouraged by some of the trials in our life because of the way that God is using them to work in our lives. And, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue our study in the, uh, in the book of Hebrews. Now last week you remember that we talked about the fact that because of Jesus that God's throne is a throne of grace and that we can come there boldly with confidence because of Jesus. But but if you think about that that doesn't always kind of make sense to us, does it? I mean, think about why this is such an important thing, why it's such a big deal because God, as we know, God is holy. And sometimes we think of God being holy as just mean like He's like us, only a lot better. But the word holy means He's separated from us. He's, he's completely different and distinct from who we are. And so there's a certain separation that occurs between us and God just because God is holy. And then that, that, that gulf is widened by the fact that we are also sinners. And so when God tells us that we're to come boldly to the throne of grace in His Word we understand that there has to be something or someone that can bridge that gap and allow us to come into God's presence and and to do it boldly. Now, under the old covenant, there was a human being who did that. He was called the high priest. And remember, as we're reading in Romans here, we're talking that the writer of Romans is writing to some Jewish Christians who have this desire or maybe this, this tendency to want to go back to their old way of faith, to their old Jewish religion. And so one of the questions that they were probably asking in this, in this whole situation is, well, if this new covenant is so great, then where's the high priest? Because that's the only thing they knew. They, they only knew that, that there was this high priest, this, this human intermediary that would come between them and God and, and allow them to be able to come into God's presence. And they're asking the question, where's the high priest? And so the writer of Hebrews, he's going to tell them over and over and over again, That Jesus is the high priest. We saw this all the way back in chapter 2 when we first started our study. And it talked about the fact here. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And we saw it again. We saw it again we got to chapter 3. It talks about Jesus is our high priest. We saw it again last week, right in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. Not only is Jesus a high priest, but we saw that he is the great high priest. And so we, we understand that, that there's this high priest and that, that Jesus is not only a high priest, he's the great high priest. He's the one who came to, to bring us to God. And so with that background, we're going to go ahead and read this morning the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 5 this morning and take a look at those, because in this section now, the writer's going to begin to describe in more detail why Jesus is such a great high priest. Matter of fact, all the way through the end of chapter 10, he's going to to focus on this idea that Jesus is our great high priest. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read. You can follow along as I read from Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this, this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears So this is a a really interesting passage here, and the structure of this passage is actually very important to helping us to to understand it. So I've given you a little chart in your sermon outline, it's also up on the screen here. And and what you see is that in this section, the writer of Hebrews, he first begins by describing three qualifications for the high priest. He does that in verses 1 through 4, and then beginning in verse 5, he begins to describe why Jesus greatly exceeds every single one of those qualifications and he addresses them one by one but he actually does it in reverse order he begins with the third qualification and works his way back to the first one and that really helps us to understand here how Jesus is our great high priest so what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to kind of just briefly work through this this chart real quick And then we're going to kind of get to what I think is the meat of the passage and what it really means for us and and how it can help us to endure as we go through trials in our life. So we see the first qualification here for the high priest is that that high priest had to be a human mediator. And it says here that the, the high priest, he made gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people. That's the way that he became an intermediary between God and man. And he would do that all throughout the year, over and over and over again. But it, it really reached its culmination on the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And he would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. But this was a process that had to go on over and over, day by day, year by year. And it was never intended to be a permanent solution to man's problem of sin, of that sin that separated him from God. And that's why when Jesus comes along now, it says that Jesus is our great high priest. He's also a human. He has to come in the flesh in order to be that mediator. But he's a more perfect mediator because he doesn't have to keep making sacrifices over and over and over again, as it's going to say later on in Hebrews. He came once for all. He comes and he sacrifices himself on the cross to make it possible For every single human being who puts their faith in him to be able to come boldly to the throne of grace, as we saw last week. So, Jesus is far superior to the human high priest. The second qualification that we see here is that they had to be sympathetic. And we see this with the high priest. It says that he was sympathetic towards the people because he was a sinner himself. In fact, he had to actually go make sacrifices for his own sins before he could go make sacrifices for the rest of the nation of Israel and so he understood what it was like to be a sinner because he was a sinner himself now as we saw last week Jesus also experienced all the temptations that we go through he experienced all the suffering that we're going to talk about today but he was different because it says yet he was without sin." And we're going to see even more today how how sympathetic Jesus is towards us. It says here that he he made prayers with cries and loud cries and with tears. And it takes us back, I think, at least in my mind, to a picture in the in the garden where Jesus is praying right before he's arrested and he's crucified. But but really these prayers, these these groans, these cries. I think they extended all throughout Jesus' life. Here's what it says. It says, in the days of his flesh, he did that. Notice days, plural. This wasn't just talking about a one-time thing. And think about it. Think about all Jesus went through on our behalf. He experienced taunts. He experienced people making fun of him. He experienced, as we talked about last week, friends betraying him. Everything that we could experience, Jesus experienced. And yet, was without sin. So he was far superior to the human high priest. The third qualification here was that they had to be appointed by God. And and certainly that was true of the human high priest. Now, by the time that the writer of Hebrews is writing this, the the whole high priesthood it, it it's been so messed up. I mean, now the high priest becomes a political appointee rather than someone who God appointed. So, the writer of Hebrews takes us back to the original intention and the original intention was God appointed Aaron to be the high priest, not because Aaron deserved it, because God chose it. And from that point forward, every single high priest was supposed to be from, from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron. And so they were appointed by God. Well, Jesus was also appointed by God. But he didn't do it He doesn't do this for his own glory, it tells us. He waited to be appointed by God. I mean, Jesus is God. He's in the glory of heaven, and yet God appoints him to come and be our great high priest. And the writer of Hebrews quotes from two messianic psalms here to help us to understand what that was like for Jesus. The first quote is from Psalm 2-7. It was also cited, if you remember, back in chapter 1, where Jesus is called God's Son. And even though he was God's son, he doesn't take advantage of that in order to come down and be the high priest. He has to wait until God appoints him to do that. The second second psalm that's quoted here is Psalm 110, which was also a Messianic psalm. And it tells us here that, that Jesus was a different kind of high priest. He was in the order of Melchizedek. Now, how many of you are familiar with Melchizedek? A few of you, right? Now, if you're not don't worry about it. He's not in the Bible a whole lot, to be real honest. He's in one short section in Genesis chapter 14 when he has this encounter with Abraham, and the second place we see him in the Old Testament is right there in Psalm 110. So those are the only places we see him. Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 7, the writer Hebrews is going to go into a lot more detail about his life. But for now, here's, I think, all we really need to know is that Melchizedek was a different kind of priest and he was different on for a couple of reasons one he was also a king it tells us he was the king of Salem now none of the other high priests were kings but but Melchizedek was and Jesus is also a king as well as a high priest and the second thing is that he came way before Aaron came along and so he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not one of the descendants of Aaron. And the same thing is true of Jesus. Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not from the line of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. And so it's pointing to the fact that he is a, a superior because he's a different kind of high priest. But he's still appointed by God. And so, so we see that here that, that, that that's true. Now what I want to do is I want to take us back here to... a a few of the verses that we just looked at and focus on them a little bit more because I think it's going to help us to to understand better what we can take away from this passage. So I want to go back and look at verses 7 through 9 again. So if you can either look on the screen or you can go back in your Bibles and, and just let me just remind you what those verses said. It said in the days of his flesh, we talked about that just a moment ago, that means during his earthly ministry. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now there's a lot wrapped up in just those three verses. But here's the idea that I want us to take away from this passage today and, and be able to use and apply in our life, and that is this, that my trials are an opportunity to grow by obeying God and submitting to His will. That Rather being, than being something to avoid, our, our trials are actually an opportunity that we're given to obey Jesus, to obey God, and to submit to His will, and when we do that, we will grow through those, those opportunities. And so what I'd like to do with you this morning is to just share three things about trials that we can learn from this passage. It will help us to understand how God wants to take and use those trials to help us to grow and become more like Jesus. So here's the the first truth about my trials. that is this, that God often saves me through my trials rather than from them. He saves me through my trials rather than from them. You'll notice here that it says that that Jesus offered up these prayers and supplications to God who was able to save him, quote, from death. And I don't know about you, but when I read that I think, well, God didn't really save him from death. So what is, what is, what's he talking about here, right? The key is the word from there. And that word from, it actually can mean something like out of or, or out from. And so it's not saying here that Jesus was praying for for God to save him from dying. It's saying that he was praying something else, that somehow God would save him through that trial of dying or out of that trial of dying. And we know that Jesus wasn't praying to not die. I mean, in his own flesh, he did not want to die, believe me. He didn't want to go through that suffering. But he knew it was God's purpose for him to do that in order to take care of our sins. So we read this in in John about Jesus and what he says in John chapter 12. He says, "Now's my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, no, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, I don't really want to die, but that's the very purpose you sent me here to earth for. So I'm willing to go through it. So so he's not really praying for God to, to save him, from dying then what is he praying I think he's praying for God to raise him out of the grave once he dies that God was going to save him not from the trial but he would save him through that trial and frankly that's the picture we see really often throughout scriptures when it comes to human beings when it comes to God's people now God is God capable of saving us and keeping us from going through trials absolutely he does that once in a while but I got to tell you the more I read the Bible the more it seems to me that God's normal pattern is to save us through those trials then rather than save us and keep us from going through them I mean think of just a few examples we've talked about this before think about Noah you know, I think, okay, God, we have this nice little, uh, you know, nursery picture of, of Noah on the ark with the little rainbow and the cute little animals and everything. But blame me, that was not a nice experience to be on a boat for about a year with all those smelly, stinky animals. And think about when they landed. We talked about this before. There was the stench of death all around them. So they weren't really saved They were saved through that trial, not from the trial. They still had to go through the trial. Think about Joseph. I mean, Joseph eventually gets to be, you know, a powerful guy in the kingdom of Egypt. But how does he get there? He has to go through slavery, through imprisonments on more than one occasion. He goes through it, and God saves him through those things, not from them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they... They get thrown into the fiery furnace, and they're saved eventually, but they still have to go through the ordeal. Now, God's with them through that. He's there in the furnace with them. Or think about the apostles. With the exception of John, who who probably died while he was in exile on Patmos, every single one of the apostles died because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them through horrible, horrible means. So the fact is that that God may not always save us from these trials, at least not here on earth. Now, we are promised eventually that we get saved from those trials because we get to be with Jesus for eternity. But while we're here on this earth, God often saves us through those trials. And the good news is he promises to go through them with us so we never have to go through them alone. Here's the second truth that we need to learn about trials this morning is that God uses suffering to to produce growth. He uses suffering to produce growth. It says here that, that Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. So let me ask you a question. Does that mean that Jesus was disobedient at one time and he goes through suffering and now he's obedient? Don't think so, right? We know he'd never sinned, so he couldn't have been disobedient. So so what does that mean that Jesus learned obedience through suffering? I tried to put that in my own words this week, and I could not come up with anything better than what Pastor John Piper said about this. So I'm going to share with you what he he said, because I think he really hits the nail on the head here. Here's Here's what he said. He said, this does not mean... He moved from being disobedient to obedient. It means he moved from being untested to being tested and proven. He moved from obeying without any suffering to obeying through unspeakable suffering. It means that the nat—the goal of his natural purity was put in the crucible and melted down with white-hot pain so that he could learn from experience what suffering and prove that his purity would persevere i think that's what happened there he and that's what god wants to do for us the suffering he puts us through is often as we're going to talk about in a moment to to help prove the genuineness of our faith god god takes and he uses suffering to to produce obedience in our life too there's there's something we can say that we're obeying god but until we actually go through those trials and and prove that we can do that there our obedience is unproven it also says here that that through that whole process that jesus was being made perfect so my my question then is, well, does that mean Jesus wasn't perfect, and all of a sudden he is perfect because of his suffering? I mean, again, I think we know the answer to that is no, of course not. I mean, Jesus being God in the flesh, he was God, he was, he was perfect. But we need to understand what this verb means here. It, it's one that's used a lot in Scripture, and if if we're not careful, we can really take away kind of the wrong idea about what it means. It's a verb that means to bring something to its intended goal. And in the case of Jesus, what was his intended goal? It was was that he would die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could boldly enter into the presence of God and come to his throne of grace. And so Jesus was made perfect in in the sense that he... He experienced all that suffering, and he remained obedient to God. He remained submitting to the will of God, and because of that, he was able to to attain to that goal. And God wants to do the same thing in your life and in mine. He wants it to perfect us. But what's the goal to which he wants to perfect us? I think we find the answer to that in Romans chapter 8. And you're probably, all of you in here are probably familiar with Romans 8.28, right? A lot of you could probably quote it. It says this. It says, and we know that in all, all, I've memorized it in a different version, so whenever I start reading it, I always mess it up. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And you guys probably all know that part. Here's the problem. We often separate it from verse 29. Here's what it says in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what's the purpose to which God does good in our trials? The purpose is so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's not, the purpose is not so that we can be comfortable. The purpose is not so that that we can have an easy life here on earth. The purpose is that we can become more like Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to perfect us to. So if we were to take those two verses and we were to paraphrase them with regards to our trials, we would probably say something like this, that God uses our trials to perfect us and make us more like Jesus. That's what God wants to do through our trials. He wants to make us more like Jesus. So do you view your trials and tribulations like that? Finally, the third truth that we want to look at is that the obedience in the midst of trials proves my faith. It proves my faith. It says in verse 9 that God will provide eternal salvation, quote, to all who obey Him. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Does that mean that we're saved by our obedience? Or as we would talk about, are we saved by our good works? Is there something that we can do by obeying Jesus that allows us to experience His grace and mercy that allows us to come boldly to His throne? I think the obvious answer to that is no. But how do, how do we really know that? I mean, what, how do we know that's not what he's saying here? Well, let's go back to some verses that we looked at a few weeks ago in, a, in Hebrews chapter 3. And back in Hebrews chapter 3 in verses 18 and 19, hopefully you remember these verses, we, we saw this. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Okay, so keep that in mind. So we say that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Remember we talked about there that we forfeit our rest in Jesus because of our disobedience, but our disobedience always has its roots in unbelief. And so here when it's talking about obeying Jesus, what I think it's talking about is obeying his call to believe in him. Those of you who are on our quarterly uh, Bible reading plan, this week we read about belief, right? And we saw Jesus over and over and over call to his disciples, make this call, you need to believe in me. And we saw that that belief was far more than just an intellectual understanding. It was a change in their life based on what they believed. And so I think that's what he's calling us to here. That's what he's talking about. And I think John does a really good job of summarizing what this this obedience means here in Hebrews when he writes this in 1 John says, and this is the commandment. What, what's the command? That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded to us. So to me, what that's saying is that this, this command here to obey, it's, it's to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to believe in Him. And all the other obedience that we're going to see, we're going to see a lot more obedience talked about in the book of Hebrews, but all that obedience all stems from this initial obedience to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so what happens is that, that our obedience doesn't make us right with Jesus. What it do, does is it proves that we're already right with God through faith in Jesus. And so what that means for your life and what it means for my life is there, there ought to be some evidence. If we're going to call ourselves Christian, there ought to be some evidence in our belief or in our in our faith because there's obedience there there's submitting to the will of God there now obviously none of us do that perfectly that's why we need a great high priest that we're reading about here in the book of Hebrews but it does mean that that ought to be our desire it does mean that that ought to be the 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 primary direction of our life is that we're moving towards obedience in Jesus So we've seen this morning that my trials are an opportunity to grow by obeying God and and submitting to his will. So what does that look like for us? How, How do we respond to what we've learned today? Let me make this really practical for all of us. If you have never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you need to do that today. You need to do what we just talked about. You need to obey His call to believe in Him, to put your faith in Him. You need to quit trying to to make your way into God's presence through what you can do. And you need to rely 100% on what the great high priest, Jesus Christ, has already done for you on the cross. See, because of His obedience, He not only kept the whole law, but He also provided payment for those of us who have broken the law and what he calls on us to do is just to accept that gift through faith he makes it available to all of us but every single one of us have to make that decision to put our faith in Jesus Christ so if you've never done that you need to do that today we've seen in this in in the book of Hebrews time after time he keeps talking about today 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 and I just want to urge you if you've never done that please do it today For those of us who have already done that, and I'm pretty sure that's most of us that are in this room, probably a lot of you that are joining us online, then then what does this mean for us? I think it means that we have to start looking at our trials from a different standpoint, from a different viewpoint. Instead of looking at them as something to be avoided at all costs, something to dread, we need to understand that they're, they're able to be used by God to help us to grow and become more like Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that we ought to wish for trials? I'm not saying that. Does it mean that we we go, whoopee, I'm in the middle of a trial and it happens? We're not saying that. But what I am saying is that, that instead of always wanting to flee from our trials, sometimes we just need to stay there and let God work on us for a while. I mean, I don't know about you, but my initial reaction when a trial comes along, I want to get out of there. That's the first thing I want. But when we look at the example of Jesus here, what if He had done that? What if Jesus would have said, you know what, I'm I'm just, I'm going to bag it. I'm out of here. I'm not going to go die on the cross. Then we wouldn't even be here this morning. We'd all still be in our sins. We'd all still be separated from God. So God can take and he He can use these trials in your life to help you to become more like Jesus. You just need to ask Him to help you to do that. And the good news is that you don't have to do that alone. That the same great high priest who's experienced everything that we've ever gone through, only far worse. He loves you. And he cares for you. And he's seated at the right hand of God and interceding for you and praying for you and cheering for you. So that you'll use those trials in a way that will help you to grow in your faith with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the trials in our life. Father, we we admit they're not always easy. Father, not something that we enjoy. They're uncomfortable. Sometimes they last a whole lifetime. But thank you that Jesus was willing to suffer And submit to your will on our behalf. And that because of that, makes it possible for us not only just to endure our trials, Father, but to grow through them. To become more like Jesus. To live a life that would be pleasing to you and give you glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.